This is the first of six podcasts from the Royal Irish Academy History of Emotion series. The speaker is Dr. Katie Barclay, who offers an overview of the study of emotions in history. I'm Katie Barclay, and I'm a historian of emotion based at the University of Adelaide in Australia. And here I'm going to talk to you about some theories of space and emotion. Before I get into the meat of it, I'm going to begin with a vignette. Alexander Wingate vomited by the river, taking water from a small spring above its bank to clean his mouth. The queasiness overwhelmed him that morning, but the hard ball in the pit of his stomach was not new. His nerves prickled, body tense, irritable, restless. He felt compelled to move, driven from his home in the dim morning light. He walked to work, a straight path from Marlborough Street in the Carlton, where he lived, down Bridgeton Main Street with its small paned glass shop fronts below and residents above, towards the five grey arches that formed Rutherglen Bridge, the structure that gave the village its name. Yet he passed by the weaver shop where he wrought an ancient, perhaps decrepit trade. He was drawn to the banks of the Clyde, that wide-flowing river that bounded his community, increasingly divided it, as the stretches of green pockmarked with round-topped trees, animals and the children who acted as their carers were replaced by imperious orange rectangles, regularly spaced black windows and tall smoking chimneys. Around him the rapidly constructed brick factories and tenements grew, overshadowing the streets and the courtyards, the land where so many of the area's new inhabitants constructed makeshift housing amongst rubbish, rubble and the cheerfully coloured laundry swinging hopefully despite the dark sky. Wingate lived in Hayesland. He was not alone that morning, could never be alone, not least by the river still used for bathing, laundry and personal leisure even as its massive power was harnessed to drive the mechanised power looms that hummed around them. Textile workers, weavers, spinners, bleachers, dyers, printers found form and flesh in the new day as they spilled out of the dark closes that marked the interstices of households packed tightly upwards. It had been a cold, wet winter and March had brought little reprieve. Warmth was hard to find in the expanding villages that were quickly becoming Glasgow suburbs other than in the bodies pressed close together in small rooms and shared beds, heat born of intimacy, of friction, more rarely of fabric and fire. Neighbours greeted each other, greeted Wingate now sitting on the wet river bank as they met the damp morning air. Their friendly commitment to neighbourly relations belied by accents, Irish, Highlander, Lowlander, local, Catholic, Protestant, Markers of similarity and difference offer something of the self to grab onto against the repetition and regimen of the factory, warping the weave of a community embedded in place and history. Wingate thought himself a local, born here along with his four surviving siblings, the others now faded into memories of childhood, of others' childhoods. Another Alexander, a Janet, disappearing before he was born, surviving in stone in the local graveyard as an evidence of his family's attachments and belonging. Scottish communities have memories of their own, however, and for many he remained a newcomer. Alexander Wingate Sr. had been a cotton weaver born in Stirling, turning up with his wife Marion over 30 years earlier, a journey of only 30 miles, but far enough to mark them as not from here. He was distracted from this line of thought by a flash of colourful fabric, a silk brocade covered in bright pink flowers, stiff layered shuttle woven threads producing the effect of delicate embroidery. 
New Wingate, recognising too an older fabric cut into fashionable style, broad shoulders, narrow waist and a conical skirt that sat a few inches above the ground, narrowly missing the mud and grime. The wearer was protected from the day's drizzle with a large scooped hat, fussy with shiny ribbons, that overhung her face and wrapped in a calico mantle with a blue diagonal print. A visitor to the poor New Wingate bringing a few pennies and copious advice for frugal moral living. Recipes for soap made from animal render, a fraction of the shop price and only three days labour in the making. A tract for children, a story about fortitude after the death of a sibling, a fortitude that no child in his community need taught. Placing hope in God and industry, which was it, wondered Wingate. He thought he knew, looking upon the river, some things were enduring. Yet even the river was changing. The jetties that during his childhood sat like colourful ladders on its livid surface were slowly disappearing. Dredging deepened the river. Shallow barges were replaced by ships, bringing slave-grown cotton and sugar from plantations in Asia and America. Salmon departed. This blue-grey body that captured the day's lights and dark in its contours was browning rapidly. Industry, hope. Tentacles from the balls in his stomach spread through his limbs. Wingate rose from the riverbank and went to work. Light escaped around the edges of the large shutters that covered the windows of John Ray's shop. Wingate glanced across the road, hoping to spot his sister, 18-year-old Isabella, a domestic servant who worked in the building opposite. Living in, it was called. He rarely saw her. Calico prints were in fashionable demand, and alongside cleaning, preparing meals and running errands, Isabella helped set the blocks that stamped fabric with the florals and geometric designs desired by consumers. Wingate was late for work. Alexander Wingate was prosecuted for the murder of his mother and sister in 1831. He was 20 years old and had moved into the home that his mother shared with her sister, Wingate's aunt, his sister Christian, and Christian's seven-year-old son, six weeks before their deaths. The family were poisoned by arsenic placed in their porridge, the staple food of the Scottish poor. On the day described above, while Wingate went to work, the remainder of his family lay dying in their one-room department. His is a life that I have been grappling with in an exploration of how place and space come to matter in the lives of two young Scottish men who, in separate moments of insanity, according to the court, committed murder in the early 19th century. Both of their accounts and those of their neighbours put particular emphasis on the physical environments and geographies that informed these events. These were subjectivities made not just against a backdrop of industrialisation, changing work conditions and movements of people, but where a relationship with land and place was critical to the production of subjectivity, to how they understood themselves. As subjects made through and with place, that our physical environment becomes part of the production of emotion is unsurprising. Interestingly, emotion has been central to spatial theory since Henry Lefebvre developed the idea that space was not a particular physical environment, but what was produced when we considered location, landscape, architecture, geographical place alongside the human activities that happened in that environment and the words, discourses and ideas that attached to both place and people. For Lefebvre, emotion and space were critically connected. Emotion is the resource that humans use to interpret their environment. They feel in particular places and use that feeling to help assess meaning. These felt meanings shaped by cultural ideas, physical environments and human bodies became part of how a particular space was understood and so experienced. Particular spaces also contained their own rhythms. 
a form of energy that was produced by users but could be observed and felt by those in space. At times, this energy could build up, leading to riots or carnivals, or it could alienate people from their surroundings, dampening feeling and action. Much of the experience of space happened in the everyday, so that if people were felt and shaped by the emotions that infused their environments, they did not seek to question or transform them. Occasionally in situations Lefebvre calls moments, people have a revelation about their environment that leads them to contest or transform it. These moments were conceptualised as felt experiences, where emotion guided the human to an alternative way of thinking about or practising the world. A number of emotion scholars have developed these ideas. Mark Seymour has expanded this in his emotional arena, a place that staged and shaped a range of sentiments in ways that were increasingly distinct from other social spaces. He places particular emphasis on such locations, whether the courtroom or home, as sites of negotiation of feeling, both set apart and distinct from other environments, and yet where emotional dynamics are worked through and figured out, while never being separate from that environmental context. Thus he gives the 19th century home as an example of an increasingly private space that developed its own emotional dynamics and meanings, but where emotional experience was nonetheless negotiated between partners within that environmental and discursive context. The emotional arena of the home was shaped by wider cultural ideas about emotion, but was distinctive from, say, the theatre or the public street, and so emotions would be performed differently in such environments. Ben Anderson has posited the concept of an affective atmosphere, trying to capture the experience of affect as it is experienced within particular spaces. This is a similar idea to the emotions produced by the rhythms of a location described by Lefebvre in that it recognises that particular spaces, through the way people use them and engage with each other, develop the ability to affect the emotions of those there. Anderson prefers the term affect to address the way that such feeling might not be consciously acknowledged, but experienced as, say, a quicker pace of movement or an anxiety or tension that heightens the senses, but is not immediately acknowledged. Affective atmospheres is also influenced by the sociologist Emile Durkheim's concept of collective effervescence, a form of emotional energy often produced through group rituals that heightens the sense of the group or collective and creates the feeling of being part of something larger than the self. Effective atmospheres is a concept, therefore, often used in relation to crowd behaviours, such as at concerts or during riots. However, like affect itself, many emotion scholars dislike the concept, at least in its original formulation, for its focus on the unconscious and pre-discursive experience. Others suggest that the idea of an emotional atmosphere can be explained without resorting to the concept of affect, Rather, engagements between people and place can create a sense of atmosphere. If Lefebvre provided a model of space as something performed and where emotions help give it shape and meaning, Seymour offered arenas as distinctive emotional sites within a shared culture. And Anderson explained how the emotional atmospheres of particular spaces molded individuals within them. Then emotional geographers explored the relationship between space, place and emotion across time and place. Some look at how emotion varies across place and why that might be the case. Do all cities have the same fast-paced emotional energy? Or are some slower and more sedate? And what does that mean for how people feel? Many are interested in how our surrounding environment shapes what we feel, looking at rural and urban differences, or how the experience of being in a church might differ from that of being in a nightclub. 
Building on findings from these questions, some then ask how emotional space shapes quality of life, happiness, health or access to political power. A scholarship of urban political protests and riots is important here, as events where collective feeling can transform space. Some, such as Reclaim the Night marches, where women protested against the fear that restricts their movements, may even be designed to transform the emotional experience of a particular environment. This can also be the case in rural contexts, such as the women-only land collectives in the US, Australia and New Zealand, that were, among other things, meant to provide land where women could live without fear of male violence or sexual exploitation. There is also considerable work on migration and the movement of people, exploring how people become attached to place, how belonging is developed and where it is not, and how definitions of boundaries and borders can be used to include and exclude with related emotional effects. A history of refugees might highlight how anti-refugee discourse in a particular society might lead to feelings of exclusion and isolation by migrant groups, limiting their ability to find belonging in new communities and form connection with their neighbours. Here, political discourses become an integral component of space, drawn on to produce meaning in a particular geographic context, and where both this idea and its reception are experienced as emotions by groups in that place. The insight of emotional geographers are useful for interpreting space as they help us to notice the many components of the human world, of the many resources and particular environments that can be drawn on in the making of experience and how they vary across cultures. Perhaps more than other approaches to emotion, spatial theory and the insights of emotional geographers are useful for highlighting larger material and political structures the things that humans have little ability to change at an individual level. As emotions are so closely tied to the self and the body, many theories developed to help explain how people produce emotion that is socially made tend to emphasise the resources that humans have some capacity to control or shape, rather than the larger material structures that they have to live within. Monique Shear's very popular practice theory, for example, highlights emotion as a product of habitus, that is, they are habits that we learn through socialisation and so reflect cultural norms. Performance approaches coming from the same intellectual tradition as Lefebvre similarly highlight emotion as performative, produced and given meaning through repetitive gesture. Both of these approaches locate emotion as products of society and culture, but nonetheless, with their focus on the self, they tend to draw attention more to the individual and their personal expression of emotion than its surrounding context. A focus on space with its stress on geographical location, architecture and material world refocuses our attention to our environment as well as the self and their feelings. The implications of this for models of emotion is that if emotions are things we produce within particular situations, then such feeling is bounded by our material world and context. Our emotional experiences are not just restricted by whether we have access to particular emotion words or concepts in our language, but also by the tangible effects of things like architecture, environment, distribution of resources and so forth on our bodies. For someone like Alexander Wingate, whose story opened this paper, we might then seek not only to look at his own erratic emotions in the lead up to the murders of his family, the psychological processes of a psychotic break that was and is a feature of mental ill health for a number of young men, but to consider how these events were a product of his placement within this urban community full of migrants from across Scotland and Ireland, pushed together into both the declining artisan-based weaving trades and the new textile factories dominated by female workers that were taking over. 
It is to consider why his testimony incorporated the story of sitting and vomiting on a riverbank beneath Rutherglen Bridge, a structure designed by the engineer James Watt, the same man whose steam engine was a critical moment for industrialisation, allowing factories to be situated anywhere in the country and not just on hills next to running water. It is to reflect on the river so central to economic and social life that was becoming quickly polluted with significant environmental consequences for the local community and the ways they lived. It is to consider what it meant to live through a period where parkland and green commons were removed and built upon, a loss not just of greenery but methods of survival and independent food production for poor families. And to understand these experiences as part of the formation of subjectivity and the emotional self, where environmental context shaped the rhythms of the everyday, provided an arena to negotiate culturally produced feelings, and where people were moved by the effective atmospheres that shaped how they related to place and to others within it.